Would you stand with me, please? Have we turned and greeted one another yet? Oh, good. Turn and hug and kiss each other. Bible says, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's it? What, you're done? That's the loving, that's finished. How sad, this group has already sat down. Now let's stand together and pray together. Who told you to sit down? I shall wait for everybody to stand except for those who can't stand. You can't stand? What's your problem, Coralie? Sorry? You only have one leg and you can't stand because? Can't stand on one leg. You got dragged here tonight on a on a stretcher. And we shall pray and you'll walk out. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thanks for the opportunity we have to be together, to be family together, to sing, to greet, to learn together. And I pray now that your Holy Spirit might certainly uh, teach us through this portion of your word. Help us to get a better, clearer, sharper glimpse of the Lord Jesus and to fall in love with him all over again and to be passionately devoted to him and for him. We ask this for his sake. And everybody said, please be seated. I invite you to have your Bibles open to this passage of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. If you're visiting tonight, then we are working our way through Hebrews on our Sunday night services. And between now and Easter, I trust we will get to the end of chapter 4. There are 13 chapters in Hebrews, and we hope, God willing, to get to the end of it before the Lord Jesus returns. That might be just before he returns, but we will get there. It's a great passage. It's only six verses. And it's right in the middle of something which is an argument the author is developing. And let me give you a summary of it. Who you think Jesus is will determine your choices and your conduct. If you understand who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will yet do, if you understand who he is, it will impact you and it will change your life. The author to the Hebrews is writing to a group of people, probably Jewish by background, who had come out of Judaism and had brought with them, like we do when we become followers of the Lord Jesus, brought with them baggage their own particular worldviews and perspectives on things and tonight's passage is probably, for some of these readers at least, uh, a view of Moses which the author is seeking to bring into balance. We're going to talk about that. I think there are five sentences that summarise this teaching tonight. Here they are and I'll give them to you a couple of times. No, no, don't go, oh, all right, you can go there. It says, therefore let the church, that is us, the house, the family of God, those who were, according to chapter 2, once, is this echoey? Do I sound more holy? No? I don't know what you can do to fix it. 
But there you go. Therefore let the church, the house and family of God, those who according to chapter 2 were once bound in sin to Satan but who have now been set free, therefore let the church consider Jesus. Two important words, consider Jesus. And you will discover him to be worthy of greater honour than Moses. And Moses is a remarkable servant in God's family. And then, having considered Jesus, in contrast to Moses, let those in God's family commit themselves to staying faithful to Jesus, the supreme Son of God, who is over God's family. It's an easy sentence, isn't it? Moses was a servant of God. If you study the life of Moses, as I have had cause certainly over the years, but even this week I revisited some of it, he is remarkable. He's faithful. He is mortal as we are. And he is head and shoulders above all other servants of God throughout history. He is a remarkable individual, but Jesus, supreme, even more so than Moses. In fact, he appointed Moses and Moses served him, as we will discover tonight. The author of Hebrews has brought us so far from chapter 1 and 2, we're beginning of chapter 3, that Jesus is greater than the prophets, clear a message. Jesus is greater than the angels, a clear messenger and tonight he is greater than Moses, a greater servant. It's not necessarily an issue for us but it was, as I indicated, perhaps an issue for our first century followers of the Lord Jesus because there is some evidence that Jews of the first century considered Moses to be the greatest man in salvation history. He was regarded by the Jews as superior to the angels. Wow. And see, it was Moses to whom the angels appeared who gave him all this revelation. They were serving him as God's leader. The rabbis, the Jewish teachers, scholars, even taught that God had magnified Moses even to the status of calling him a God, Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, where God says to Moses, you will be like God to Pharaoh and Aaron will be like a prophet. The rabbis took that and said, how incredible is Moses? And even in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the promise of the Messiah, the one who was to come, the future king of Israel, is described simply as another Moses. It's going to be like me. Moses is exalted both in biblical history and certainly in the Jewish mindset. And therefore it's part of the background to Jewish people becoming followers of the Lord Jesus and coming to worship Jesus and then trying to figure out how does this fit together? Where does Jesus fit compared to Moses? Moses is the highest. Where does Jesus fit? And the author to Hebrews is saying, well, he fits exactly like this. Jesus is worthy. Verse 3, Jesus is worthy of greater honour than Moses. If you've got your Bible, then let's go to Hebrews, uh, Hebrews, to Numbers chapter 12, which is the passage the author to Hebrews quotes twice. It's one of many instances that in the Old Testament tell us about Moses. 
But this is the occasion where Moses' brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron, are a bit cheesed off that Moses is getting all of the attention, that he has become the chief leader, their younger brother. And they thought they deserved some of the glory. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1 and following, all the way down to verse whatever. Then Miriam Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman that he had married. He married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, has the Lord only spoken through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard it. I mean, Moses was very humble, more so than any man on the face of the earth. I love that verse, verse 3. I mean, Moses was very humble, more so than any man on the Who wrote it? Well, Moses did. He's the author of the Pentateuch, isn't he? And it's probably true as well. Verse 4, The Lord spoke immediately to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam. The three of you come to the tent of meeting. So the three of them went. The Lord came down and the pillar of cloud stood at the entrance of the tent. He then called Aaron and Miriam. They both came forward. You sense the tension, don't you? They're in trouble. They probably weren't fully aware of it. The Lord said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak with him in a dream. My servant Moses is not like that. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, openly, not in riddles. And he will see the form of the Lord. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them and he departed. When the cloud departed from above the tent, Miriam became leprous as snow. And Aaron looked at Miriam and she was leprous. Forgetting about what God does to Miriam and Aaron, but notice the Lord's attitude to his servant Moses. He is a remarkable servant whom God says, he is faithful in all my house. When I speak to him, I speak intimately, personally, face to face. To everybody else I speak in riddles and dreams and visions, indirectly, but with him face to face so to a certain extent the Jews had some reason to elevate this man not to the extent that they did but he is a remarkable servant just like I wonder if you have Christian heroes I do Charles Haddon Spurgeon Mr Spurgeon to all of you Chuck to me read many of his sermons studied his life have been moved to tears by his commitment and passion to the Lord Jesus. If you've never read Spurgeon, there's a challenge for you, read him. He'll move you. You'll read many commentators and preachers and you'll be amazed at what a remarkable preacher. When you read Spurgeon, you'll go, what an incredible God. He's continually pointing you to the Saviour. An anointed servant. He is remarkable, was remarkable. Billy Graham a man of outstanding integrity, 
in our lifetime. Perhaps you have Christian heroes, people you look to. Well, the Jews undoubtedly looked to Moses and the author to Hebrews is saying, as good as Moses is, as good as Chuck Spurgeon was and as good as Billy Graham is, they bow their knees. They're not on the same platform as the Lord Jesus. He is worthy of all praise. Exalt him, follow him, study him. That's what the author is at pains to get the Christians then to do and the Holy Spirit us now to do. It's one of the reasons why I like Spurgeon. He points me continually to Jesus. So here are the five statements we're going to work our way through in this passage. It says, number one, therefore let the church. We'll talk about the church. Number two, the church is to carefully consider Jesus. And as we do, then the church will discover that he is, to be, he is worthy of greater honour than Moses who was a remarkable servant in God's house, next, yep, in God's family. And as a result, as we honour Jesus and learn about him, our response is to let us also commit ourselves to staying faithful to Jesus, who was not simply a servant, but who was the son who owns the family. These five points. Let's go. First one, therefore... First word. That points us back to the author's argument from chapter 2, primarily the second half of the chapter, where he has reminded us that we are made of flesh and blood, that we are fallen, sinful and held captive to Satan. But Jesus, our conqueror, has come. He has set us free. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. Chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, because he has acted, because he was tested, tempted, tricked and tried like all of us, but he was successful. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, the church is called holy. We are those who have been set apart by God, called out of the kingdom of Satan, called out of the world to be different, to be dedicated and devoted to him and committed to each other. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, It's a beautiful term. It's all-inclusive. It talks about how we are equal, how we are valued, how we are welcomed, how we are wanted, needed and respected in God's family. We are to stick together, holy, brothers and sisters. Then there's this unique and beautiful phrase in verse 1 that we are also partners in a heavenly calling. We have something in common. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus here tonight, then you have been called. It's a heavenly call. It has come from heaven. But it is also a call to heaven. It has come from God, by his spirit, convicting us of our sin, calling us into submission to the Lord Jesus. A heavenly calling, which takes place in this world, space-time, history doesn't happen outside of this lifetime you need to make your decision now while you are living in this life this call from heaven is a call to repent to believe to follow it's God knocking on the door it's God dialing the phone and you picking it up and saying hello it's you connecting with a true and living God we have that in common we follow and we and know Jesus 
brothers and sisters in his kingdom together. And verse 6 at the end of this passage also reminds us that we are God's house, we are God's family if we hold firmly to the end. Not everybody who says they follow Jesus does. Some people think they do, but they don't. Some people just go through the routines. They maybe turn up to church or they were baptised as infants or whatever it is. They've been through some sort of religious, ritual, ceremony, practice, eh, but there's no relationship. It's not real. It's, you haven't answered the call. Eh, you're pretending. Maybe you know some close friends just like that. People who say they're Christians but really aren't. And the author of Hebrews is going to challenge us about the authenticity of that call and that being manifested in our life. Think about that. If we are the holy family of God, the brothers and sisters whom God has taken out of Satan's kingdom, brought together to be together, to support each other, and as he'll say in chapter 3 and verse 13 and following, uh, that we are to consider one another how to encourage and support each other in this journey together. We're in it together. It's not just individual, there's a corporate dimension to it. And that we as a church, when Satan says, who are you? Well, our answer is, I belong to him. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. I'm a child in the family of God. I wonder if you are. If you're not, you can become one, because if you're not, eternity hangs in the balance. If you're not part of God's family, then you'll be excluded from his family forever when you exit this life. Well, this church that Jesus has called out of the world, called together into a community of his people, there is the command in verse 1 that we are to take note of Jesus. We are to consider him, to carefully consider him. Him. It's the imperative. This is the command. There are three commands in chapter 3, implications of this teaching, and this is the first one. And if we get no further tonight, then this will be more than enough for us. This has certainly stimulated and rattled my cage this week as I've looked at this passage. The author says to us that we are to examine Jesus. Not to say, yeah, I know him, yeah, I know all about him. No, no, no. To be consumed with a passion to know more about him. Study the life of Jesus. Examine him carefully, closely. Note the details. Inspect him. Investigate his claims and actions. To the best of your ability, focus your attention on him. Think about his origin and his person. Who is he? What did he do? What is he doing now? What is he yet to do? The Bible gives us answers to all of those questions. Well, how can I do that? How can I obey this command? How can I carefully consider the life of Jesus? Well, here is a couple of ways. Number one, the Bible is the only infallible record of the life of Jesus. There are lots of other sources. I've got a list here tonight of about 20 books that you could read. And I may bore you by reading you all of them. Titles only. The Bible is the infallible guide to who Jesus is, and particularly the Gospels. Not only, but particularly. Tony Campolo, who is a provocative Christian, current, 
now getting elderly, probably in his 60s, maybe nearly 70, Tony Campolo, but passionate about the Lord Jesus. He belongs to a particular group of people called the Red Letter Christians. They're evangelicals who have just banded together in the last half a dozen years or something and they call themselves the Red Letter Christians because they take the red letters of the gospel. I don't like Bibles that have red letters. I don't know if you have one. It's personal preference. But it's very American. And he's saying red letter Christians are those who take the words of Jesus and take them very seriously and they study them. And what's the implication of what Jesus said? And it's provocative. It's challenging just to take the words of Jesus. Just as an aside, I don't like calling it red letter editions because all of this is the word of God, not just the words of Jesus in the Gospels. But nonetheless, my challenge to you tonight is take the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Take the next 90 days and read a chapter a day. Do it four times a year. On top of your Bible reading, study the Gospels, study the life of Jesus, study him intimately. Read and reflect upon what he said, what he did, what he taught. Learn more about Jesus. That's the command of the author to Hebrews to us. Take Note of Jesus. Consider him carefully. And as I said, I just got the books off my shelf. I have 20 other books, both scholarly and popular, that talk about the life of Jesus from different dimensions and avenues. I'm not going to read them to you, but if you would like to know, you can come and get my list. Can you borrow the books? No, buy your own. Oh, all right, I might lend you one. They're my books. I could lend them to you for a price. Unless you're a pastor who shares coffee with me. It's a great saying. It's a terrific motto. WWJD. Which stands for... You know, don't you? It's a terrific motto, isn't it? And it's worth thinking about. In my situation that I am in, what would Jesus do? Well, it's a healthy perspective as you study and understand the life of Jesus, then to bring that to bear upon your life choices. The only trouble with what would Jesus do is it tends to be based a lot upon imagination rather than revelation. It's what do I think Jesus is like? And what do I think he would do in this situation? Well, if you've got a faulty view of the Lord Jesus, you'll be making faulty choices. So a better acrostic than WWJD is WDJD, which stands for? What? Oh, you know that acrostic too. What did Jesus do? That's much healthier. That's much more solid. Study the Bible. Read what that teaches us about the Lord Jesus. And then, on the implication of that, commit yourself to knowing more. And then you don't slip into the your image of the Lord Jesus. I met with someone a couple of weeks ago. They've decided not to come to church anymore. They're a believer, a professing believer. They think it's the best decision they've ever made in their life. It isn't. I said to them, how are you doing spiritually? Yeah, yeah, doing good. 
Really? Yep. Feel happy. God wants me to be happy. What would you say? I said, no he doesn't. Well, if I was God, I'd want everybody to be happy. I said, well, that's a clue. You're not God. He doesn't want everybody to be happy. God wants everybody to be obedient and to glorify him. The overflow of that is contentment and peace and joy will come into your life. But God's agenda is not your happiness. God's agenda is your submission to Jesus and obeying him. That's what God's on about. So if you're not happy, check your relationship with him. I knew that this individual had made a wrong choice because God says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some but rather consider the day that he, of his appearing and encourage one another more towards that day. It's not God's will. It's not God's choice. He made a wrong choice. I understand the choice, but it's the wrong choice. What would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? I said to him, Luke chapter 4 verse 16 tells us, the Lord Jesus went to the synagogue every Sabbath as was his custom. Do you think he enjoyed synagogue every Sabbath? Doubt it. But he went. Why? His understanding of what God's will was to gather together publicly to glorify him. Well, there are lots of books about Jesus, but the most important is obviously the Bible. So commit yourself to reading and understanding who that is. We better move on. It'll be 12.30 before I finish. Verse 1 continues that this Lord Jesus, whom we are to take note of, uses two expressions, particularly one, which is not used anywhere else. He is the apostle and the high priest whom we confess. He's never called that anywhere else. He is the apostle. Not an apostle. He is the apostle. What's an apostle? Someone who has been sent someone who has been authorised with a message to go like an ambassador to fully represent the government. Jesus has been sent. You read the Gospel of John, you'll find out there are like 43 different occasions where Jesus refers to the fact that he has come from the Father, he has been sent from the Father. What he hears the Father saying is what he does. He has been sent. Most famous verse in the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16 is... For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And verse 17 says, louder, outstanding, Andrew, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. God sent his son. He is the apostle. He is the representative of what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Study the life of Jesus. That's what verse 1 is saying. And Jesus is not only the apostle. Verse 1 reminds us that he is also the high priest. He's the one who's been sent from the Father in order to 
make it possible for us, who are flesh and blood, held in captivity to Satan, to make it possible for us to be released and to have access to God, to have a relationship restored to him. He is the high priest to which all other priests and high priests point. He stands between us and God. He builds the bridge. He is the bridge. He walked over the bridge. He invites us back because of Jesus. That's why he is so crucial, so important, so central. That's why he's preeminent. All priests entered an earthly temple, an earthly replica of heaven's auditorium. Jesus entered heaven's holy of holies. All earthly priests took the blood of an innocent animal. Jesus took his own blood, innocent and holy. Priests declared people forgiven. Jesus paid for it. They were the symbol. He is the real thing. Because we understand that, we are to live in the light of it as well as to share that truth with others. That's what verse 1 goes on to say. He is the apostle and high priest whom we confess before God, before one another and before others. Verse 2 goes on to say, and this same Lord Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. Jesus was faithful to his God-given task. Who will go? Send me. So the church commit themselves to studying the life of Jesus, holy brothers and sisters, responsive to a heavenly call. Know him, study him, investigate him and you will discover, number three, that he is more worthy or worthy of greater honour than that incredible servant, Moses. I wrestled with how much do I tell you about Moses because you can slip over into jolly well glorifying Moses and not focusing on Jesus. So I don't want to do that. I want to try and avoid that. But in order to honour the Lord Jesus, you need to get a, a glimpse of what Moses was like. That he is a man who is, from a human perspective, impressive. i just give you one at the moment. You turn over to chapter 11. I've preached on this years ago. But this is Moses in chapter 11, verse 23 and following. And it says, uh, By faith Moses, when he was born, his parents hid him for three months because they saw the child was beautiful. Well, like my grandchildren, really. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 24, get this. By faith, when he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be ill-treated with the people of God rather than to enjoy sin's fleeting pleasure. He regarded abuse suffered for Christ to be greater wealth than all of the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because his eyes were fixed on the reward. By faith he left Egypt without fearing the king's anger, for he persevered as though he saw him who was invisible. And it goes on. He's a remarkable man whom God called and gifted and equipped. And see, that's the challenge. If he could do it, so can pastors. If he could do it, so can missionaries. If he could do it, so can we. If 
But he is no different to us. He is like us. That's the challenge that comes as you study his life. But Jesus is greater. Just like a builder is greater than the house that he builds. Let's quickly move on to number four and focus a little bit quickly on Moses who was that remarkable servant in God's house. Verse 2 tells us that Moses was also faithful, just like the Lord Jesus, faithful. Certainly not sinlessly, not imperfectly. He does make some mistakes. He's usually, mostly faithful. He does mess up a couple of times, significantly. You know, kill somebody, um, hits a rock instead of speaking to the rock, lost his temper a couple of times. But on the whole, he is incredible. In all of God's house, probably throughout human history, much greater than Spurgeon, much greater than Billy Graham even, he was the lead servant, as this passage is sort of alluding to. Think about the life of Moses, just really quickly. His 90 seconds worth. He was protected from birth by God first basket case in history he was called by God at a burning bush he was used by God to defeat the mighty Pharaoh he opened the Red Sea he turned salt water into fresh he gave us the law of God he gave us instructions on how to worship and serve God he gave bread from heaven he raised a serpent on a pole to heal he saw God face to face to the point where even his own face reflected God's glory Um, he saw the glory of God pass by he heard from God and at the end 120 years he was buried by God miraculous in his birth miraculous in his death and miraculous all the way through his life he's faithful in all God's house and yet verse 5 reminds us when you study the life of Moses he was pointing forward to somebody much greater than him if you study the life of Moses you'll end up admiring the Lord Jesus to whom he was pointing one was coming after him, a prophet like him, but greater than him. You better listen to him, is what Moses was saying. Verse 6 gives us a contrast, if you like. Moses served in the house. Jesus is head of the house. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son. Moses was hired by God. Jesus is the heir. Of God. Moses was an outstanding servant. Jesus is the owner son. So if you study the life of Jesus, then you'll come to realise the author of Hebrews is saying that as great as Moses was, he is completely inferior to him. And that in the ancient world, a little bit like our world too, but to a lesser extent, where the ancient world was very... Um, clear about what house, what family you belong to. The greatest family in the ancient world is the family of Augustus, the emperor. And then there are other families, aristocracy and so on, families. And the author of Hebrews is alluding to that. If you belong to the house of Moses, well, it's prestigious, but the house of Jesus is the house of God. That's the highest and greatest honour of all. And so to leave the house of God, to leave the house, the family of Jesus, And to go to any other house or family is to step down, to decline. So therefore, don't go back to Moses. Don't go back to the Jewish way of understanding, but rather stay true to Jesus, 
to the house, the family that he is building. Let those, number five, in in God's family commit themselves to staying faithful to Jesus. Don't drift, don't slip, don't slide away and don't jump overboard. Stay focused. Well, a couple of points of application. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you'll understand most of these things, if not all of them. My question is, does your life reflect this understanding? Or is it something you just say? You tilt your head to it academically. You say, yep, that's what I believe. Uh, But the will is defiant on the throne of the heart. Is your faith in Jesus something that you profess on Sundays and on life group nights? Or is it something which is real for you 24-7? Not imperfectly, but realistically. Very wealthy man, can't remember his name uh, when I read about it, came under conviction of his own personal sin, of his own certain death, and that if he died, he was pretty convinced that he would go to hell. He was like me before I became a Christian, except I wasn't wealthy. Well, this wealthy man was desperate to know the truth. He had heard preachers, he'd examined some lives, and he was disappointed with the inconsistencies, and he thought it was all a sham. One preacher came along, my memory says that it was Reuben Torrey, follower of D. Moody, D.L. Moody. So the wealthy man hired an investigator, Chicago, early 1900s. He had the private investigator follow Torrey for a couple of weeks, maybe up to a month, and to report back to him basically with this brief. I want to know, is what he preaches true? Does he live by what he says? Is he a hypocrite or is he fair income? Is he real? How would you do? How would I do? If a private investigator was investigating you or me. I bet you're driving. That seems to be a favourite illustration of mine. Yeah, shopping. When you shop, an authentic follower of Jesus, which means, of course, you don't buy ice cream, chocolates or fat. But it means if you're given the wrong change, you're honest. Or if that stupid person on the other end of the aisle with the trolley who is on the wrong side. You are a follower of Jesus, so you swap sides. You're pleasant in passing. You ever stood your ground? I have. Well, there's a principle at stake, isn't there? What about on the internet? If somebody else checked your internet usage, would that reveal that you are a consistent follower of Jesus? At work? At home? At sport? In public? Private? In conversations with people? In conversations about people? Followers of the Lord Jesus. Well, the private investigator reported back to this wealthy man and the report went something like this, that Reuben Torrey was authentic, not perfect, but authentic, that he behaved consistently with his beliefs. Does our life reflect 
that reality. It's what the author of Hebrews is challenging us to do. Brothers and sisters, we have been called out. We're partners in a heavenly calling. Take note of Jesus. Commit yourself to being faithful, to following him. You might say, yeah, 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 I know all of that. And God says, I don't care what you know or what you say, I care what you do. Moses was incredible. Paul was zealous. Calvin was outstanding. Spurgeon was passionate. Luther is overrated. Erasmus was radiant. Billy Graham is resplendent. Mother Teresa is inspiring. And whoever you want to put in the list, but they are all less than Jesus. To him is to be the focus, the glory, the honour, the attention, the accolades. No one stands on the light with him. Everybody else on the platform that we put on the platform, they kneel in his presence. They bow before him. He alone stands worthy. He alone is glorious. Do you get it? And live accordingly. Commit yourself to studying him and knowing him. I think it's a hymn, I'm not sure, but this is the last sentence. My desire is that let my life choice express a will that delights to say yes. I leap to obey you. What he says, what he wants, what he requires, I want to do. That's the teaching of this passage, brothers and sisters. Consider the life of Jesus and commit yourself to knowing him and then being faithful to him. Perhaps you're here tonight and you haven't yet made the decision. You haven't discovered who Jesus is, but you want to know more about him. Answer this question. Are you in the kingdom? Are you part of his family? Or are you still on the way? If you're still on the way, come and chat. Love to help you more about it. Finally, to most of you who are followers of the Lord Jesus, I'd like us to take about 30 seconds, maybe a minute. I want you to think of a word or a phrase, maybe even a sentence or a couple of words and phrases. Who do you think Jesus is? What does Jesus mean to you? What word comes to your mind when you think about him? Pick a word or a phrase or a sentence. And then over supper, after the service, when we're finished, talk to one another. What word did you pick? How would you describe Jesus? What is the one thing that comes to your mind? What's preeminent for you about him? And encourage one another in your following of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence, acknowledging that you are the sovereign God, King, of heaven and that you sent your son the Lord Jesus into this world to be your apostle to reveal who you are and to be our high priest the one who would pay everything and do everything to reconcile us to you and then Lord you not only acted through Jesus but you by your spirit have then called us with a heavenly calling into your family and you remind us both to be faithful but to go deeper 
to study and to consider the life of Jesus. So Lord, have your way in us. Motivate us, move us to know him more and more. And for those in the building tonight who are still on the way, Lord, we pray that you might be merciful and gracious as you have been to us. We pray this in the incredible and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.